This is Tom Stanfill, author of Unreceptive, A Better Way to Sell, Lead, and Influence. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Tom Stanfield to talk about his book, Unreceptive, A Better Way to Sell, Lead, and Influence, published by HarperCollins. Tom Stanfield is CEO and co-founder of Aslan Training, a global sales enablement company appearing nine consecutive years in the Selling Power Top 20. Since 1996, Aslan has worked with many Fortune 500 companies, training more than 100,000 sellers and leaders in over 35 countries. And interesting facts, he and his wife, Claire, have 14. Teen grandchildren, and in the hot Georgia summer of 1980, Tom had the dream job of riding in a non-air conditioned truck delivering 500 Coca-Cola machines. He got the job because he was dating the Coca-Cola Company president's daughter. Tom, congratulations <laughs> on Unreceptive, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Wow, you did read the book, Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how did you know that? And I'm like, oh, that's right. I think that's in Chapter 14. But thank you for having me on the show, Douglas. I'm very excited about uh meeting you and and uh, talking to your listeners. Great to have you here, and I really in, enjoyed the book. And yes, you revealed all kinds of things uh, about you and your life and the challenges you've had and the, the successes, but let's not talk about the book just yet. Let's talk okay. about Tom Stanfill. So you are a graduate of Georgia Tech. And, I am. Yeah, and my dad taught there uh, many years ago, right after World War II, and you are the second a Georgia Tech grad I've interviewed for the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm a Georgia Tech and a hell of an engineer. So the first was Sarah Cooper. <laughs> Sarah Cooper. She yeah. is the author of 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Beanings, How to Get By Without Even Trying. I uh, love that. And, and that's actually, people always say, Douglas, you've had hundreds of books on the show over the years. Mm. What's the best one? It's that one. It's how to really? appear smart in me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, wow. she's a comedian, and that was oh, actually okay. an April Fool's Day episode a few years ago. But believe okay. it or not, uh, she was an engineering graduate from Georgia Tech, and she, uh, she worked for Yahoo and, and Google. And then she started to pursue this uh, comedy career and uh, 
you know, she's now uh, had a, she's got a show on Netflix. Wow. Okay. I'll have to look her up. So what I'm saying, Tom, is that you go to Georgia Tech, you write your first book, you make an appearance on the Marketing Book Podcast, and things start to happen. I, you I'm going to be on Netflix. That's yeah. the next stop. Matter of fact, they're calling now. Yeah. I'm, not, yeah. I'm sure that's going to happen. Well, you do need to do this interview, and then mm-hmm. you can... <laughs> yeah, I'll finish this interview. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's important that we have a, a clear next step, right? A commitment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. I'm going right. to feel a little pressure, though, because if, it sounds like if I do this well... I'll get a Netflix special. Okay. Well, no, no. I mean, you have a lot of options, Tom, and I'm going to drop okay. the rope here. So, okay. You know, and these are all things right. we're going to talk about. This is all from his book. But the, like I said, the the book has quite a bit about your life. This is your first book. And, yes. uh, you, you know, you end the book on a truly inspirational note. I mean that with all sincerity. I'm not joking around for just a minute here. It really okay. got me thinking about life. And I, it, it's just a, I, I really appreciate that. But, Tom, there are even more reasons why this book meant so much to me. When an author writes about going to Graceland, uh, <laughs> how much they love bourbon, and then they quote David Ogilvy and Robert Cialdini, well, it's it's as if we're brothers from different mothers, Tom. Wow. Uh, you are really you you really are bringing some stuff up that I've actually forgot. I remember going to Graceland, and I remember now writing about that. Yeah. Yes, you were doing free training for FedEx yeah. there, and you said. You know, exactly it was right. free. I don't care. At least I got a trip to Graceland, and I said, "Hell yeah, brother!" Yeah, I loved it. I still remember that that the Graceland. I remember the the den and the was there a plane in the back or there what was something in the back? Now that I'm, I'm forgetting what I saw. Well, Tom, I I have not yet gone to Graceland, so it's on. It's one of the few things on the bucket list. So. You know, yeah. just uh, it's a good city. It's, it's important city. to have life goals, though. So, <laughs> let me um, just uh, explain something to the first-time listener, because every episode there's always a first-time listener, and people are wondering. You know, this is the marketing book podcast. Why is a book on sales on the marketing book podcast? Well, it's a good question, and one of them is very personal. I just love reading sales books, but also I get so many marketing ideas, particularly content ideas by reading sales books. But even more important than that for the listener is that the most successful marketers have the deepest insights and understanding of sales, what the salespeople do, the sales process, and even more importantly, the buyer and the friction the buyer has and all those sorts of things. So I read a book like yours and I'm just thinking, this is great. And it's the sort of thing where you know, a lot of marketers might want to read at least one sales book a year and yeah. then share it with your salespeople if you if you if it's a if you it is a good book and and can be very helpful and getting marketing and sales on the same page is really important so mm-hmm. that's why I really get excited to be able to have uh, a, a book like yours on the marketing book podcast so I wanted to read uh, just a couple excerpts from the beginning of the book and then uh, get into it does that sound good love it love it and I do love. Uh I want to echo your point about marketing and sales and the alignment that needs to occur there because when we we train sales organizations and what I, I, I the best companies bring the sales and marketing together so that there co- there's a cohesive philosophy in how they position their solution and talk to the customers and that's when companies really dramatically grow. Yes, and there's even you know, a study one that one that comes to mind is from Serious Decisions. It showed that companies oh, yeah. with better sales and marketing alignment have faster growth and greater mm-hmm. profitability. Oh, well, I remember that now. 
Yeah, so let me read uh, from uh, once a couple sections here. The first is from page XI in the introduction, and for the <laughs> for the listeners in Rome, that would be eleven. Yeah, right. Well, you we, know, we did a, we did a unique numbering thing. Yeah. So uh, you're mm. right. This book is a culmination of 25 years of research and field testing about what it takes to break through the walls that divide us and change those strongly held beliefs. Whether it's about social change, the best way to solve business problems, or convincing your daughter to break up with a guy who's no good for her. The traditional approach to communicating fails us when attempting to persuade someone who is unreceptive. What mm. follows is the antidote. And then when I jump over to page two and read, Influencing people when they are emotionally closed is difficult, if not nearly impossible. I've spent the last 30 years dedicated to solving the most difficult riddle in selling, which is to help people make better decisions. After spending thousands of hours studying how the brain works, meeting with PhDs and behavioral psychology about what drives decision-making and observing thousands of sales interactions, I've learned that not only do our instincts lead us down the wrong path, but everything we've learned about selling sabotages our ability to convert the unreceptive. The percentage of decision-makers who are receptive to meeting or embracing a new solution is very small. If the customer is emotionally closed, your value proposition, insights, and solution don't matter. Neuroscientists have proven that when emotions elevate, the logical side of the brain shuts off. The traditional approach just doesn't work when dealing with the unreceptive, which explains why the percentage of sellers who achieve quota has declined for five years in a row in the most robust economy in history. To convert the disinterested, sellers must develop a new mindset and skill set. If they do, they can see engagement rates increase by up to 800% and double the average close rate, as my colleagues and I have observed for years. What I'm about to share has been street-tested for decades. Not only have I practiced these principles and strategies for more than 30 years as a seller, leader, spouse, and parent, my company has also trained and coached more than 100,000 sellers in 35 countries on these concepts. This way of selling is a radically different approach to sales, one we've proved over and over again. My personal passion is to make these truths available to everyone. Yes, to the sales rep who's struggling to make that monthly commission, but also to the teachers and parents and friends who sincerely want to persuade someone they love to change their mind for the better. And finally, on page nine... Ultimately, this book is about achieving the highest level of influence and changing a person's belief. Of course, it will increase your sales, allowing you to be more successful and make more money, but it's about more than that. This book, if you let it, will help you persuade your friends, give feedback to coworkers, help your children see a better way, and advise loved ones who are struggling. You can use this power for good in all kinds of situations. So, Tom... This sounds like a great book. Douglas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good promise. This guy is good. In fact, Tom, yeah. this book is so good, you could probably just stop here. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's funny to have it read back to me. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, that's pretty good. You know, because when you're so close to the book and you've been writing it for so long, you just start to get tired of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. I want to ask, I want to just jump into this one yeah. uh, very important concept. And I'm just going to read this one other thing. It says, don't you want to get rid of that constant feeling of groveling for attention and having to force your way into meetings? Wouldn't mm. it be great if clients came to you and asked what you thought they should do? Don't you wish you could focus more on figuring out the best way to solve their problems instead of just fighting to get their attention? And then you go on to write that you can if you start thinking like a farmer. Explain. 
Ah, thank God. Well, <clears throat> the idea that obviously that we're, we're talking about, right, is the fact that if someone's unreceptive and, and the analogy that I, I use to talk about the solution and kind of set up uh, sort of a metaphor for what we need to do is I think about farmers. You know, for a farmer to have a vibrant crop, there's two dimensions. There's the soil, the quality of the soil and, and the the quality of the seed, the fertility of the soil and the quality of the seed. And there's a lot of engineering to seeds. I mean, that's a big deal. But where does the farmer start? And I always think about the farmer I met um, while playing golf in, Cal in Hawaii one time. He's a the orange, orange, farmer. orange farmer, yeah, orange farmer, and I and I because I said, you know, this is an analogy I've been using. I said, you know, let me let me ask you a question: What matters most, the seed or the soil? And he said, if the soil ain't fertile, the seed don't matter. <laughs> and I just love that. It was like, this is, sales reps have a seed mentality, which the seed is the message. What do I want to say? What what message do I want to plant? But where does the farmer start and where do we need to start in sales is the soil. If the customer's not receptive, you can't plant the seed. And so what reps do is just keep throwing seeds and they're running out of real estate. They're running out of fertile soil. And there's reasons why there's some dynamics in the market that are happening that are causing that. But um, so that's the idea of it. The, the, the farmer knows. The farmer starts with the soil. And then they work on the seed. And so in sales, we need to move from a one-dimensional approach to selling to a two-dimensional approach. Focus on the soil first, then plant your seed. And there's actually a way to plant the seed. And this is where I think it connects nicely with marketing. There's a way to plant the seed that creates receptivity as you're planting it. It's like it creates more of a fertile soil because you can get the soil fertile, the customer receptive. But then all of a sudden, as you start to talk to them and deliver your message, they can shut down. Mm-hmm. So you have to constantly manage those two dimensions. Right. And at the beginning of part one, which is uh, the first barrier, changing their perception mm -hmm. of you, I want you to explain, you write, to address the first barrier to converting an unreceptive audience, everything hinges on two questions asked mm -hmm. consciously or subconsciously by every customer. Are you going to pressure me and am I the priority? Mm -hmm. Can you explain yeah. that? Yeah. So the reason, another way to the best probably the best way to set this up is what customers are rejecting is a sales call, not a solution. Yes. And so they, that's what they're rejecting. And so sale, if sales reps know that, <laughs> then they have to understand. <laughs> then it don't focus on the solution. Focus on why they're rejecting you. And those are the two P's that drive whether they're going to reject you or not. Is is this about me or is this about you? Who's the hero of the story? Mm -hmm. yeah, and and so every seller. But funny, I just my son just sent me a video of somebody who's reading the book. A friend of us is reading the book, and he said this works. I stopped before the meeting and I reset my compass and I made it decision to put the customer first. And when you make this decision before every meeting about who really is first, am I here to serve or am I here to sell? That's really the only two options. I, I think I talk about this in the book. I was um, driving home from some work one day and my wife and I share a Pandora account. And the message popped up that said, do you want to listen to Pandora or do you want to let the other person listen to Pandora? There's two people listening. Who gets to listen? You or them. And I actually had to pick a button that said me or her. And that's the same thing. That <laughs> I hope you happen. chose wisely, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> I had somebody one time ask me, which button did you click? Yeah. I clicked her. Mm -hmm. 
And that's that we have to do that before every meeting. And the decision that you make before every meeting usually determines the outcome of the meeting. Who's going to be first? And so reps spend so much time thinking about their solution. They think of so much time. And this is true for marketers as well. We spend so much energy and time thinking about our stuff. It's not that we don't want to serve the customer. It's just we default to leading with our stuff Mm -hmm. and leading with our agenda. We just can't help it. And so we have to stop and reset our compass and make sure that the the customer is the focus, the priority. Then the other one is pressure. People think we're going to pressure them um, because there's a commission involved. Anytime someone is going to recommend something or they have an agenda, we sense that tension. They're trying to get us to do something. And when we feel like people are trying to pull us to their position, we always instinctually pull back. You tell me to stand, I now want to sit. You tell me to leave, I want to stay. It's just a, it's a, and psychologists have a term for this called reactance. Mm-hmm. Like you saw a sign, um, I didn't put it in the book, but I thought about it. There was a sign I saw that said, don't throw rocks at the sign. So what do people do? Throw rocks at the sign. Mm. And so those are the two P's that I think of when I think about developing the right mindset. Who's the priority and are you, and how can you eliminate pressure? Right. So to the listener, I just want to say that was not in the book, so that is a marketing book podcast extra. <laughs> I love it. We're already exceeding their expectations, Tom. So awesome. reactance, very important psychological principle. Mm-hmm. And and even you're guilty of it. When somebody's trying to push you, tell you what to do, I, I see it all the time. So talk about the concept of dropping the rope. Very, yeah. very powerful. And I had been using it over the years in a different way, but uh, I had never heard of this this approach, dropping the rope. Dropping the rope. And and the reason that we want to give terms like that labels is because it's sticky, right? So if I see somebody that's been through one of my workshops, it actually happened. I walked into a workshop. I mean, I walked into a company like a a couple of years ago, and I hadn't seen or been there or seen these people in literally 15 years. Um, And the guy walked into the room and goes, drop the rope. (laughs) Like, (laughs) exactly right. Um, Well, it has to do with the tug of war. It has to do related with to reactance. Yeah, yeah, related. So, so that's the way we don't talk about the reactance principle, but because it, it's this is a better way to I think to get the concept to stick. But every time, because of our role of selling something, there's this there's this tug of war that's happening. Right? They think we're going to try to. Their perception is whether it's true or not. By the way, we may not be pulling the rope, but they see a tug of war. We're trying to pull them to our position. They think that, so therefore their instinct is to pull back. You want them to buy something, therefore they're going to be less interested in buying them. You want them to pay more, therefore they think they should pay less. I want to talk to my daughter about who she's dating. She thinks I want to control her, so she doesn't want to listen to me. There's a, there is a tug of war that exists because of the, the title on my business card, whether I'm in marketing or sales, the tug of war exists. So what we need to do is drop the rope. And because here's the reality. There's like four options the customer has, and one and two of them may mean that they don't need us. Mm-hmm. And we need to put all options on the table because that's the truth. You know, they, we need to be able to eliminate the pressure and say, "Hey, listen, I don't know if our solution is right for you." You know, and I, you know, Progressive Insurance used to do this. They'd say, "Look, check out our website. We'll tell you what our competitors charge." Mm-hmm. That's a drop the rope kind of. We're not going to try to force you or push you or pressure you. We're just going to. We're going to communicate that there's no pressure, and this is us to get, deciding together what's right for you. And it may be you keep doing what you're doing or do something other than what I'm going to recommend. Mm-hmm. And because you're communicating that, they become more receptive. 
So over the years, when I've met with a prospect, and this is absolutely a truthful mm-hmm. statement, I say, we're not a fit for everybody. Yeah. And, and you touch on that, and I've seen their body language change, because yeah. apparently no one's saying that to them, or at least in my instance. And it's sort of like a, I was thinking about this the other day, where, you know, you know, the marketing services business where it's like some people are coming to a grocery store and they're saying, I, I need food. Do you have food? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> we're going to need to find out what it is you you actually want. And I feel like sometimes I'm talking to companies like that where I say, well, let's let's see if we can talk further about what it is you, you actually need. And mm. I, I really, uh, I'm going to go even further now in the future because you talk about specifically how to drop the rope and you say... Um, like identify every path that customers can take. Mm. It's just it's you know the first one could be you you might want to do nothing or 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 not do anything now or you could go to this kind of company or that kind of company. And I think in the book you even talked about a you went up to a, a trade show booth once and asked yeah. about a company and they said, well, look, there's there's three kinds of companies in our industry. You can tell that story. Yeah, it, it it was it's such a powerful way of experiencing the the truth of drop the rope. And I walked up to the booth and I was confused, right? And so customers are confused. And so when they are confused and they go, "Wow, you can actually help me," and you're not just going to sell me your thing, they want to grab you and say, "Help me," because <laughs> right. they're like, "It's confusing." And and by the way, less the customer the research is showing. Because of all the information available on the web, the customer's desire to engage with the seller has decreased 120% in the last three years. I mean, they are running away from sellers, which, by the way, what we do, our instinct is to pull the rope because the people are leaving. Mm-hmm. And that that backfires on us. But so I was confused. I was that customer who didn't know what was going on. I was new to this trade show. I was new to this industry. And I just walked up to this booth. Which of course I'm kind of scared of. You can see the people not look, you know, when they walk down the aisle. You can see them kind of; they're nervous to come over there because they don't want to get stuck. You know, people are sticky. Salespeople are sticky. And I walked up to the booth and I said, um, "What do you guys do? You know, what's this solution?" And he, they they did a beautiful job of explaining. They said, "There's three kind of companies in this industry. Some do this. Some do this." And some do this. And some people need this for this reason. Some people need this you know, category for this reason. And some people need this category for this reason. We're in category three. So I'm not sure what you need. You may need to work with category one or two. And I was like, great. I mean, let's talk. And it, so it, it just, it was so comfortable. And I could tell they were there to serve me, not try to pressure me and keep me and hold me. I wanted to stay versus leave. And so that's, that's the beauty of Drop the Rope. Uh, love it, and that obviously that story had an impact, even though it was a different part of the book towards the towards the end. So, yeah. moving on, you mentioned your compass. Re- what is resetting your compass, and how does it cure commission breath, Tom Stanfield? Yeah, I love how does it cure. So, the idea of the compass comes from you know how the actual compass works, right? The compass works because of this huge magnetic field right in the North Pole. So that's how it works. So it always knows where North is. Well, our North is self. So we always default to self. This is just a natural thing. There's nothing wrong with it. When I come home tonight, I'm going to default to self, not my wife. When I walk in the room and meet with my children, I'm going to default to self. Um, you know, even on this interview, I, I'm going to default to, to promoting the book. I'm going to default to looking good. I'm going to default to saying the right thing. All that self. And so resetting your compass is deciding I am going to be more successful and I'm going to be more fulfilled as if I make the customer 
the priority. And I'm going to choose to decide to put them first. And if I do that, all the things that I want will ultimately happen. Now, maybe not short-term, but definitely long-term. So that's what I mean by resetting the compass. And that's what I mean by the decision that you make before every meeting. is It has more to do with the outcome of the meeting than actually what happens in the meeting. It's what do you do before then? Because our, our, our beliefs drive our behavior. Our motive is ultimately transparent. So when it's about us, we have commission breath. And people smell it. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody, you can tell when someone genuinely cares about what you have to say, or they respond with, oh, that's not good. That's not going to help me. I wanted you to say this, or you're not responding the way I want, or you just said this, and that's versus I'm here to serve you. And by the way, I think it's really important to, to point out, there's a lot of people that are wired to serve and are completely getting this message, but mm-hmm. the way they think they're serving is to leave tough conversations. So sometimes serving means you ask tough questions, or you say things that the customer doesn't know, or you challenge the customer. So serving isn't about just being nice and weak and and going, whatever you need. Yeah, those about, are like some of the myths of dropping the rope. Yeah, that's one of the myths to drop the rope. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's about leading, and it's about it's about dropping the rope and staying, not throwing the rope and walking out the room. Okay, I told you, you know, fine, you may not need me. See you later. Um, that's a way of avoiding conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, we need to lead the customer to the best solution. And if we don't know what that is, then we have, we've got work to do. But that's our role. Yes, and you write... On page 45, the sales professionals who are most successful at ensuring a high level of receptivity all share a common characteristic, other-centeredness. Absolutely. Other-centeredness seems like uh, a really important part of the book, your brand. Talk more about this this whole other-centeredness idea. And in fact, there's another website, other-centered.com. That's exactly right, yeah. Other-centered, obviously, is just the opposite of Mm self-centered. And so our really philosophy as a company, it drives all of our our content, all of our training programs, whether it's leadership development, our messaging uh, process, our training. It's all about the idea that we are more successful and more fulfilled when we're serving and when we put the customer first. And by the way, that's true not only at work. It's true in life. I am a better father to my children if I'm focused on what's best for them. I'm a better husband if I'm focusing on meeting my wife's needs and meeting my needs. And so that's this whole concept and passion I have for being other-centered is is it's like this is we were designed i believe that we were designed and created to serve and when we have this sort of con, cons, consumer mentality of like I, me 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 um which there's reasons we believe that right we need to take care of ourselves we, ha- we it's important we have needs needs are real but the 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 demand and the and the desire and the grabbing of trying to serve ourselves actually backfires um, and when we're other centered, we actually get what we want, which is, you know, we build better relationships. We have better at influence. We're, we're better friends. We have better community. So things just work better. It's, but it's counterintuitive, which a lot of things in this book is very simple to understand, but it's so counterintuitive, which is why we come up with some of these sticky concepts because it's hard for people to get a handle on something that's just so radically different than how you just naturally operate. It's it's interesting, and I as I was reading the book, I was uh, reminded of 
things I've read about how the human brain is very self-centered. And and, mm-hmm. and again, like you said, that's not a bad thing. That has helped our ancestors survive. <laughs> right. Yeah. So just understanding that's the natural uh, setting, like of the compass. Yeah. That's the true north. Uh, but in terms of selling, it seems like the, the buyer is – it's 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 really easy to tell uh, that there. It's really easy for the buyer to tell when you're being focused more on yourself, and unfortunately, it seems to be most of the time. Even even in the way that uh, sellers reach out to people. So, and speaking of reaching out, mm-hmm. on uh, page forty nine, you talked about how sellers fail to engage decision yes. makers more than ninety eight percent of the time for one simple reason. They don't know how to position a meeting. I- explain what you mean by yeah. positioning uh, a meeting and, and how that actually makes prospecting easier. And your marketing audience is going to totally get this because they they understand how to position something. You know, they they understand that the way you're going to position a product or position a solution or position anything is really the core, and then you can deliver that message, that position in so many different ways. And what sellers don't understand is they need to position the meeting based on the customer's whiteboard. And because what they do is they position the meeting based on their whiteboard. This is back to our instinct sabotage, our ability to convert to disinterested. Because our instincts, they talk about our solution. I have this thing that I do, and it's really cool, and it does these things, and it's going to give you this benefit, and let me tell you about it. That does not grab people's attention. That's like showing them a picture of you. They could care less about a picture of you. You show them a picture of you, and they go, I don't care. Uh, so <laughs> and, the and they may not say get, that, but that's what they're going to think. That's what yeah. they're going to think. It's like when you pull out your, your, you know, you pull up a photo album from a trip on your phone, and it's a bunch of pictures of where you've been on your vacation. People might act interested, but they're not interested. Yeah. I mean, maybe if they want, here's, here's the people that are interested. They want to go there. Yeah. And that's a small percentage of people, people that want to go to where you just went. And that's the same thing with our solution. Who is interested in our solution? People that are already looking for it. But the 98% who aren't, they care, they care about their whiteboard, what's on their whiteboard. So I always tell sellers, I say, picture your decision maker, who you want to talk to. All right, so you got somebody in mind, picture them, okay? They're sitting in their office, what's on their whiteboard? And if they, you have a blank stare, then you, you will not get a meeting with them. You will not engage them. You will not get their attention. What you need to do is lead with what's on their whiteboard, which is simply something they want or a problem in getting what they want or a plan to getting what they want. But it's all about what they want. And if you can say something that's on their whiteboard, they will look at it. It's like showing them a picture of them. If you show them a picture of them, they will look at it 100% of the time. You always look at an email. If it's if there says something in the email about something you want, and so you know we talk about prospecting and getting people's attention is not about selling; it's about alignment. It's about saying what they're already thinking, mm-hmm. what they already want, and so that's the first element of it. There's three things we talk about, three elements of the position, but that's the first one, and that goes back to being other centered. Other centered people study their customers' whiteboard. You don't have to tell them to do that because they're other-centered. Mm-hmm. Every time they meet with a the customer, they, they they ask questions. They get to know them. They may not even know why they're asking the questions. There's like, I want to get to know these people that I'm serving and what they care about and what's important to them and what shows do they go to, what books do they read, who do they listen to, who's influencers. And so they just become super smart at knowing what's on their whiteboard, and that's how they position everything. 
And in this section, you talked about, uh, I think you mentioned the, the Challenger sale. Uh, yeah. Explain what disruptive truths are and the role they play. So the first thing you want to do is, like we said, is lead with what's on their whiteboard, which I just call lead with their point of view. And that, by the way, is true whether you position you're positioning a meeting or you're positioning your solution. But this the could be the their their fears, their challenges, uh, the things they're worried about. Yeah, anything. It's like it's just about like like when I was writing this book. If someone says something about writing a book, I read everything that everything that said something about writing a book. I read it because mm-hmm. I was writing a book. <laughs> it was written <laughs> like, all over your whiteboard. Yeah. It's all on my whiteboard. My book on my whiteboard was things related to the book. That was one of the things that was important. Mm-hmm. So the second thing to keep their attention is to communicate a disruptive truth. Again, it doesn't have to be disruptive, but the, the biggest way to drive receptivity is disruptive truth. Meaning I'm going to tell you something, whether it's a best practice, a principle or research, um, the truth that you don't know about a better way to solve their problem, better way to solve your problem. Mm-hmm. And so Challenger talks about insights. I like to think of it as disruptive because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Yes. I, and not only does this keep their attention, it elevates you in the mind of the decision maker as someone who can solve their problem. The reason that decision makers don't like to meet with sales reps is because they have nothing to say. They have no expertise to offer. So they delegate it down to other people who can talk to sales reps or do the research because they're just going to tell me what's on the brochure. They're a source of information about their stuff. Well, I don't need to talk to a seller about your their stuff. I can get that some other place. You refer to have- it as uh, they're talking websites. Exactly. <laughs> I love they're talking, that. Uh, yeah, they're talking website. If your sales so, team is a talking website, you're not going to do very well. Yeah, that's a great. It's a, yeah, I like that. I forgot about that. Um, so yeah, so that's a disruptive. So the next, uh, so start with their point of view, then attach a, dis, a relevant disruptive truth. Most people think this, but actually this works better. Um, and then the last thing you want to talk about is what do you do that's unique? Mm-hmm. What's your what I call proprietary benefit? Because you have very limited time. What is the thing related to the point of view, related to the disruptive truth that you can talk about that you do that's unique? And by the way, marketers reach out to me all the time, um, and they're pretty good with the point of view. Um, they're they're average at the disruptive truth. The pro, the proprietary benefit, I heart, I never get that. Never get the proprietary benefit. Like, what's unique about you? Like, I'm constantly barraged by marketing organizations who are sending me stuff about generating leads. Mm-hmm. Well, I need leads. I run a company. Leads are important. So that's on my whiteboard. That gets my attention. This, the disruptive truth, every once in a while, you'll hear some people will say, some people think this is the best way to generate leads, but we do it this way. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So you got me. Okay, I'm listening. I'm reading your email. I'm listening to your message, where however it's delivered. And then, then I'm like, well, what do you do differently? Because I've done this before, and I've talked to other companies, <laughs> and I'm working with partners. What do you do differently? Nothing. Yeah. I just yeah. I, I just generate leads. Yeah, leads are okay. us. Right. Yeah, and, and, and in the book, there's uh, so the listener knows, there's a lot of explanation as to the types of things you can do and how you can even get started thinking about some of the ways that you could be proprietary. Mm-hmm. So... Now, this is going to be of great interest to the the salespeople, but um, I wanted to move on to this uh, 1033 idea. You write that the typical email, voicemail, or call is getting buried in a tsunami of information. Mm. And you've already touched on how 
a lot of these companies aren't even, you're not even bothering people because you're invisible. <laughs> but you yeah. talk about if you can change your approach, you can break through the noise and get more meaning. So uh, talk to us about this 1033, 10-30-3 uh, introduction. This is an approach to introducing yourself, which obviously you're either talking to somebody on the phone um, or even, I doubt, I, I don't think it would happen virtually. I think it'd be phone or you could be walking, you know, when we back people, they're going back into the workforce. You're walking through a building and you work with this one person, but you're trying to meet with somebody else and you stick your head in the office. So this is the context of of this, this approach um, is how you introduce yourself to, to someone who's unreceptive. Uh, and 10 seconds is really just to quiet the voices in the head. So the first 10, se- the first 10 seconds is to say something that gets them to tune in to, to, to listening to the 30, which comes next. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're thinking about something else like, oh, this is a salesperson. Oh, I'm in a new, no, I need to go to another meeting. Why are they standing in my door? I don't know this person. They're thinking those things. So you don't want to say the most important part of your message while they're thinking about something else. So one of the best ways to do is ask them a question. You know, John recommended that I reach out to you. Did he tell you that? Or mm-hmm. did you know we worked with so-and-so division? It's, it, it's a question that wouldn't lead to a dead end, but it just gets sparks them to tune in. Mm-hmm. And, and I think marketers know how to do this when they're you know, sending writing copy. The next thing, uh, the next, the 30 seconds is where you deliver your position. Um, and, and the position, so you know, we, work with, we work with companies that have this problem. Um, this is what the, this is a different way to think about it, the disruptive truth. And again, what do we do? That's a little bit different. I mm-hmm. part of that thirty is thirty seconds is to drop the rope. We may not have a fit for you, and then it ends with all I would like to do is have permission to talk with you for three minutes. That's the three to learn more about what you're doing to see if drop the rope. It makes sense for us to have a, a you know a more in depth meeting. Mm-hmm. Just three have, minutes. Just three minutes. Yeah, and it, 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 this is back to your your compass. Like you, they you need to mean that. Mm-hmm. You need to mean that. And we tested this approach in the most unrecept with the most unreceptive audience I can think of is is it's life insurance salesman calling people at home. Mm. I can't think of a more difficult environment. Um, and we got them to we watched them for make hundreds of calls for, you know, for several different divisions. Uh, and we saw their success rates. And then we said, try this 1033 and the engagement went, rates went up 22 X 2,200 times more people talk to them. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I you know it's, it's, a. Uh... You know, it's a little bit like uh, reading The Challenger Sale or some of these other books where mm-hmm. it's, uh, well, that sounds like a great idea. And then you talk about how you tested it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, oh, it really did work. This isn't just it some. Really uh, well, it makes sense. Think yeah, about it. If you yeah. call somebody and you get them on the phone and you say, and you could, again, you could say this on the voicemail too. I mean, mm-hmm. you can leave it on the voicemail. You can leave a video. You yeah. can send them an email with a video embedded in it. You can DM them on LinkedIn. You don't have to say it. Like, look, this is who I am. Now, the 10-second piece may not may not be needed if they're watching a video because they can choose, right? You haven't interrupted them. The mm-hmm. 10 seconds is for when you've interrupted people. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's just like, I don't know if this, I don't know. By the way, this is what we do. I don't know if you need what we do, but this, you may not need a lead gen program. You may not need a market, digital marketing engine. You may not need this, but this is who we serve. 
And this is what's unique about how we approach it. And this is what's unique about our solution. And the unique, by the way, could be a who, what, or how. It could be who does it. It could be what you do, or it could be how you do it. Um, uh, And and, it's a great setup for a referral. If, let's say, you're not a fifth, they say, no, but I know somebody who fits that uh, criteria that you just described. Exactly. Great point. Yeah. So, uh, moving on, explain what you mean when you write that you can't overcome a false objection. Yeah, because it's false. <laughs> but that's the, there's the rub. People think they're real objections. Yeah, there's two kinds of objections. There's real objections, which the real objection is, I want to know the answer to my question. It's a tough question, but I want to know the answer. And this is a big misnomer, a myth, I guess, or maybe just a misunderstanding most sellers have. Um, is that most customers are making up reasons to avoid them. And so they, they, they try to overcome the reason. Like what my, my false objection I would use um, uh, when, I was, when, I, when I'm in the role of um, you know, decision maker, customer, when a life insurance or insurance person would reach out to him, I'd tell him my father-in-law is in life insurance. My father-in-law is in the insurance business. That was a false objection. It was true that he was in the business, but I didn't use him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I didn't. I, I didn't have a relationship with my father-in-law, so it's a false objection. So the false objection is when they're just trying to avoid a sales call, and so they make up something. And there's five common mm-hmm. ones. And so what we teach sellers to do is to respond in a way that doesn't overcome it, but it neutralizes it and continues the conversation. Right, and acknowledging that is uh, is one of the most important ones right off the bat. Right. Exactly. Is saying, uh, you know, uh, what I always think about it is just agree with them. Yeah. You know, just agree with them. Hey, we, we already work with so-and-so. Like if you were a marketing firm and you called me and said, this is true, I would say, but it's a, I may not be happy with, I already work with XYZ marketing agency. So that's, you know, and they should say, oh, great. I'm glad you found an agency. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's great. So you're probably fine. <laughs> you probably don't need to talk to us. Now, see, I'm moving towards them versus moving away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, you, you, you know, like I told my daughter, you don't, ha- you don't have to stop dating. You can date whoever you want, right? Oh, wait. So, you know, it's just it's it drops a rope, but then you need to give them a reason why to continue the conversation. Right, right. Well, back to Graceland. I mean, all roads mm-hmm. lead to Graceland. Tell the story <laughs> about your trip to Memphis, yeah, and w- what you were doing there, and that's there was a there was a I guess it was a, a an objection, but to tell mm-hmm. tell that how, what you did there. Yeah, that that kind of highlights. It's a it's a great story that highlights drop the rope and another concept we teach in the book called take the trip mm-hmm. and really how to overcome and respond to real objections. So there's a lot in this one um, one story, but what had happened is I talked to someone in training who needed a so what was on their whiteboard they needed to deliver a training class for a group of a gr- small group of people on how to overcome objections kind of what the topic we're talking about and so i said i'll do it for free um i want to get to know you you guys don't know us and i'll do this little workshop for you for free and you know we'll see what happens and it, I'm delivering the workshop. It's going well. People are engaged. And the, the, the head of the division, and the, from, at the time, this was a huge opportunity. Um, we had just started Aslan. I think we were probably been in business for a couple of years. Um, 
you know, finances were tight. I've got four kids, new company, and this is FedEx. And we had worked with zero Fortune 500 companies, we small clients. And here I am, and this guy heading up the division with probably 200 salespeople in his division, sitting in the back of the room and um, decides to come in. I think what happened is somebody told him, hey, this is pretty good. You ought to check, check it out. So he stands in the back of the room. And um, so at the end of the workshop, I'd wander back there and meet him and we were chatting up and you could tell he's defensive. And then he just says, uh, I don't really need training. I'm like, well, I didn't ask, but <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, he's pushing me away because he doesn't want me to sell it. Right. Yeah. I don't need training. You know, that's great. That's great. Well, tell me a little bit about your organization, what you're doing. I said, well, um, you know, we, we get free training from corporate and we work with your competitor and, and actually the company you mentioned was probably the biggest or, you know, in the top five in the, in the industry at the time, much bigger than we were. And I said, great, well then you don't need training. I said, but, um, I just want to understand a little bit about more about what you're doing. And here's the disruptive truth. Um, because there's 18 unique challenges of selling over the phone. And if the training program that you have in place addresses all those 18 challenges, you definitely shouldn't hire another firm. But if it's if it's built for field sales organizations mm-hmm. and not inside sales organization, then it, there may be a gap. So I'd love to learn more about what you're doing and how we potentially could help. But and so that was really kind of, it was a, an a, objection, and a, but it wasn't a false objection. It was a real objection. Uh-huh. He really like, why would I pay for training? And I'm like, that's a great question. And, you know, that response led to a great conversation, which ultimately led to a contract. And we worked for FedEx for years. Right. And now, you talked about taking the trip. And you, you write that the first step in tilling the soil, back to the uh, orange farmer, the mm-hmm. first step in tilling the soil is to take the trip, the whole trip. Explain uh, more about this concept, this concept of, of, of taking the trip. Yeah. Anytime that we want to influence someone, there are always two points of view. And so I want to be super clear about what influence means because we, you know, we use these terms and we all have different meanings for terms. Mm -hmm. Influence means you're changing someone's beliefs. So they have a different point of view, not somebody who just wants to buy what you offer and already agrees with you, you know, like they have the same political views and you guys are just sharing information and you just said, Oh, by the way, here's some more information about that. And they're like, thank you. That's not influence. That's education. Influence is when someone sees the world completely different. They're on the South Pole and you're on the North Pole, and you both see up as a completely different way. You believe this about politics, and they have the opposite view. I think my daughter shouldn't date Philip, and she thinks she should. My wife should, wants to do this, and I think we should do that. So it's you know a customer wants blah, blah, blah. So there's two polarized points of view. Instinctually, what we do, because we know it very well, is we, we double down on communicating our point of view. Here is what I believe about my point of view. Then the customer responds and says, well, here's what I believe about my point of view. And so then you amp up the volume and you say, well, here's what I believe about my point of view. And then they amp up the volume and then argument starts. And when argument starts, influence ends. Mm -hmm. And so instead of doing that, which does not work, it makes them more entrenched in their point of view. We need to take the trip, leave our position take the trip and journey down and stand next to them and say, let me hear about your world. Why do you see this way is up? Why is this your point of view? And when you do that, you'll have an O moment. You'll go, 
Oh, that's why you believe what you believe. And that's super important because that's when the emotional temperature in the room changes. And your actual physical reaction, whether it's over the phone virtually or face-to-face, you go, oh, they can sense that. They feel that. And in that moment, they're drawn to you. And you start to develop empathy. If you're genuine, you'll start to go, oh, because there's always, when there's two polarized points of view, there's always something you don't understand. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so what we do is we show, demonstrate respect and take the trip and see their point of view. And my favorite story about that is a guy I wrote about in the book, a guy named Daryl Davis, who converted, think about this, as a African-American, he converted over 200 KKK clan, I guess you call them clans members. I I don't know how to refer to them, KKK members. He would convert them, and here's what he would do. He would invite them over to their house, over his house, or he'd go to their house. He would take the trip and listen to them. I mean, think about that. <sighs> and then he would get, and he would, and the geese got people would like, ah, Daryl Davis, he's amazing. And here to these, these clans, <laughs> he's amazing. He listened to me. He respected me. I'm like, you think, he, like, how in the world? And, you know, and I, I always think about that story, and I think, they don't deserve to be influenced, right? He should just, <laughs> right. he should, they deserve a, a tongue lashing at, at minimum, you know? Yeah. But his goal was so, uh, his lofty goal of influence and changing the way they see the world was more important than his need for revenge. And he, because of the way he did it, and actually took the trip. And I mean, literally, he'd have, um, that's an, oh, by the way, having an O oh moment does not mean you agree. It yes. just means you get why they think that way. Right. Right, and, and big so difference. Big difference. The big difference. Yeah. And then you feed it back to them, and they say exactly. And when they say exactly, that's when you've opened the door to influence. That's when influence begins. Yes. Great uh, line on page 109. You write, most mm. of us believe that credibility is established by demonstrating our knowledge and expertise on a particular subject. Mm. While that certainly plays a part, the truth is is that demonstrating we understand their problem pays the highest dividends. It's true. So, Tom, I'm going to play an excerpt from uh, the American TV show Seinfeld, and I want you to explain what this (laughs) has to do. What does this have to do with discovery, which is so important? Ready? Here we go. Look at you. Oh, Kramer, don't start. No, no. <laughs> You're wasting your life. I am not. What you call wasting, mm. I call living. I'm living my yeah, life. Well, okay. Like what? No, no, tell me. Do you have a job? No. You got money? No. Do you have a woman? No. <laughs> Do you have any prospects? No. <laughs> you got anything on the horizon? Uh. No. <laughs> you have any action at all? No. Do you have any conceivable reason for even getting up in the morning? I like to get the daily news. George, it's time for us to grow up. So, Tom Stanfield. <laughs> I, I had to put it on mute because I was... <laughs> what was Kramer doing right there? Oh, it's it's a it's a great one of the best examples I've seen because I like because is it so humorous and it's so simple? Is that if Kramer would have started the conversation as you like your life has no meaning, you should move to New York, and let me tell you why your life has. Or no he wanted meaning. him to move to California, I think. California, right. sorry, sorry, so you're right, so you're right, you're, California. Let me tell you why you should move to California. You don't have a wife, you don't have a woman, you have no job, you have no reason to get up in the morning, you have no money, and then, so come on, follow me to California. 
George would have just dug his heels in and he would have just said, you're crazy. He would argue with him. And again, an argument would have assumed an influence would end. But instead of that, he, in a sense, took the trip by asking him questions. Let me see your, you know, let me, let me ask you questions so that you discover <laughs> if you need to change your life. Cause mm-hmm. and it was a kind of a drop the rope element. Okay, great. Let's, let's just, let's see, you know, uh, do you have, you know, do you have a job? <laughs> Do you have a reason to get up with them? So he just kind of led him there. And so, and he created space for George to answer the questions. And by the way, you know, obviously this is a funny example in a sitcom and we probably know that Kramer knew the answer to the questions, but in in the customer's world, we need to go, we need to have that sort of approach. Like, I don't know how they're going to answer these questions. This isn't leading the witness. We're trying to discover to better together if they need to move to California, they may not. But to figure that out and lead them to that conclusion, questions, the right questions can be incredibly powerful. Right. Uh, very, very good. And you talk in that section on uh, the discovery roadmap. Mm-hmm. Uh, to build a roadmap, you need to answer just three questions. Is there a problem you can and should solve? Uh, what's the customer's perspective on the best way to solve the problem? Very important. What's the mm. customer's perspective? I think a lot of people skip over that. Yeah. And then what's the best way to solve that problem, regardless of what of what you sell? Exactly. So yeah. um, let me just ask a couple of the quick questions here. You write that for someone to dramatically change their beliefs, they not only need to believe change is in their best interest, make up your own psychiatry joke. Mm-hmm. They need to emotionally experience the benefit. Then you write, this truth illustrates why very few save for retirement. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Tom Stanfield, why do we say we believe in something all the time and then not do it? Because we haven't emotionally experienced experienced the benefit of doing it. So... In the case of saving for retirement, what would be an example of having somebody emotionally experience that so that they would start to save for retirement or whatever the... It could be some exercise you ask them to do. It could be, you know, getting them... It could be a word picture, you know, like there's there's certain um, techniques and tools and skills that you can develop. Um, like one of them is word pictures where you can come up with a... That's really just a metaphor that helps them see something differently. Mm-hmm. But the goal is you've got to get them emotionally attached to this idea of what is it going to be like to be broken 70. Mm-hmm. And some people get that. Some people at 20, like my son-in-law, knows what he, – he just loves to save. He's got that mindset. He understands it. My, um, my, my son-in-law has the same mindset. I do not. Now he wasn't what, the guy you didn't want your daughter dating, right? No, 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 no. He no, no. Great, great point. No, that's Ben. <laughs> Let's be clear here. <laughs> big fan, big fan. Okay. Uh, beloved Ben, and so glad that he he uh, my daughter married him. So um, so yes, yeah, so he he gets this, and and my uh, my my brother in law Fritz gets this. I did not get it, but when I started watching my parents struggle mm-hmm. in their seventies, I'm like, oh. This is a big deal. And so I experienced it. I knew what that looked like. I watched it. I saw him in stress. 
and, and it had to, to do with some of the real estate stuff that happened in 2008. But the point is, is this is true for all of us. And so if there's a dramatic shift in behavior we want people to make, they've got to get connected to it emotionally because people do make emotional decisions and support them with intellectual alibis. Mm-hmm. People, you know, they, 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 that drives their, that drives what they do. And then they're going to, yeah, intellect plays a role in it, but, but most major decisions are, are emotional. So we've got to figure out how to do that. And so that's the goal. Then, then we talk about in the book, how, and there's, there's, there's definitely some ways that you can do that. Well, talk about one. Well, one of the things is the process, you know, like what's your process for getting people to experience something, um, you know, something that comes to mind is I, I visited a winery recently in Sonoma and I'm not a big, I mean, I love wine, but I mean, I'm the kind of guy that spends 15 bucks on a bottle of wine. And, you know, if I'm really, you know, going to get crazy, I might spend 20, 25. So if you say, Hey, you should spend 80 bucks on a bottle of Pinot Noir. I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. But going to the winery and seeing what happens in the winery and the the limited real estate in Russian River Valley and why that's unique and the equipment and the technology and all the grapes that they grow and the percentage that make it and what happens at every single vine. I'm like, they should be charging $100 per bottle, if not more. It was like amazed me. And going through that experience not only made me uh, enjoy wine more, it, the value of the wine increase. So that's just a simple example of how can we get people to experience what you're offering in a way that changes their view, like in the, what we sell, uh, we, you know, people don't, they got to see it to believe it. And so we will a lot of times do these workshops, you know, like we did at FedEx and we'll say, I want you to come and want to remove all the risk. I want you to see what this looks like and see what happens in the room. And we're talking about things that on a menu level don't sound like a big deal, but like other centered, for example, what does that really mean? Ah, that's mm-hmm. whatever. Don't be so, you know, it's like, but then when they see it and they see the videos and they see people interact with, it, they go, Oh my gosh, I am self-centered. It's like all of a sudden it has a new meaning and the motions get to attach to it. And so that it's just a, there's a lot of ways. Process is one. What process do you, take the customer through their buying journey so they experience the value and the benefit of change. Um, Word pictures is another one. That's the easiest, that's the simplest or fastest one that will, that will create those emotions, but sometimes they're the hardest to develop. And that's where you talked about bourbon. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's like, how can you get somebody to, and based on something, it's like basically saying there's something you don't understand. You don't know what I'm talking about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain something that you do understand and connect it to something you don't understand. And I'm going to use an analogy. And so if I do that, you'll immediately get that. Right. Um, And that's where you were trying to ask a watch salesman about what Swiss movement meant because you were looking at a a Rolex. Uh, I was looking at a Rolex, yeah. And uh, your dad had given you a Rolex and you lost it. It's the bottom of some lake. And I don't know that you've ever bought another one, but you were checking it out and you said, what is this Swiss moving about? And the guy was saying, well, uh, it's like a car engine. And you were explaining in the book, well, I don't, I don't really know that much about car engines. Cars. But what he could have said is, well, uh, do you know about uh, bourbon? At which point, you know, he would have had Tom Stanfill. And yeah, it had going, to do yeah, now yeah. I'm leaning in. And yeah. like, now all of a sudden I'm feeling a bourbon. Yeah. Right. You know, so it had to do with. Uh, 
you know, only certain things from Kentucky and the way the bourbon is made and uh, so forth. And and the same thing with the Swiss movement. It meant it was a, a certain uh, thing that was only made in Switzerland and it had it, it adhered to very rigid, mm-hmm. uh, you know, regulations, I guess, about exactly how to make these timepieces. So then, then you got it. So that was the word picture. I'm attaching value to how they make bourbon and the, what's, the, what's required to make a quality bottle of bourbon to all of a sudden instantly attaching that to, okay, that's what Swiss moment means. So that's why it's more expensive. And all of a sudden that value transfers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, and it can be like I used one with my son when he wanted to get a tattoo when he was, when he was 16. You know, that, how do you explain to someone that they're going to make a lifetime fashion decision? <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, it's like permanent. You're going to buy something and you're going to like it forever. So I, I use this analogy. I said, do you remember that T-shirt you wore every day for like six months? Yeah, yeah, I love that T-shirt. And I forgot what it said on it, but he said, I love that T-shirt. And I said, well, where is it now? He goes, I got tired of it. Threw it away. I said, well, what if you had to wear that for the rest of your life? He's like, oh, I'd hate that. And so you could see, see his emotions. Like I said, if you get a tattoo, it's like a T-shirt you wear for the rest of your life. Right, right. Oh. So, yeah, so it's, that's just a word picture, but you, the, the key is back to being other-centered. The word picture needs to be built around them, not you. Yes. Well, Tom, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, really, I know we've, we've talked about other-centered a lot, but I, I do think that is the foundation for, for converting a receptive audience. And it's also really, I think, the best foundation for life. Um, and that's why I closed the book with it, is just this idea that you're more successful and fulfilled when you're, when, and you know, you have purpose in life when, you're, when you, your goal is to, set, is to serve. And so um, if I said one thing about it, is I just say, orient yourself around that and whatever career path you choose, whether you're going to be in leadership, marketing, sales, whatever your role is, if you take an other-centered approach, your people are going to follow you, people are going to listen to you, um, you're going to have better relationships, and you're going to be more successful. Amen. So true. And it reminds me of the notion that, you know, the word empathy, which is not sorrow, compassion, or pity, it's just understanding the other person, is yeah. one of the most powerful concepts in, in marketing and sales. And those Absolutely. companies that just have a few ounces of it, <laughs> more than their competition, <laughs> right? They, they always seem to be more successful. So exactly right. What's a... One thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book or, or that we've talked about, just to get them headed in the right direction and thinking about this. You know, I think the easiest thing you could try is drop the rope. That's the simplest thing to just start applying and see if it works. Mm-hmm. You know, the next meeting that you're in, and again, it may even be better or more powerful to try it at home. Yes. Don't push don't try to control. Control is just an illusion. You have no control. So, <laughs> sorry to break it to you, everybody. Yeah, yeah, sorry. To, yeah, just say, hey, uh, you know, do what you want. You know, here's what I would recommend, or here's what I'd like. But if that's what you want me to do, fine. And the more tension in the situation, the better it is to try drop the rope. Yes. And it opens the door. It'll open the door to deeper, better conversations. So I'd say if you just try one thing, that's kind of the gateway drug. Is yes. Drop the rope. And it's at the beginning of the book, and then I really liked how you outlined really specifically all the different options that they have. It just yeah. it, it really seems rather dramatic how much credibility and and how much rope dropping uh, can happen by doing that. Yeah, I'm definitely not just in sales, but probably more in life or 
trying to get my neighbor to stop screaming at me. So, <laughs> Tom, yeah. what uh, what books have most inspired your work and career? I love that question. I, I, I hesitate to say this because it's probably said by so many people, or maybe it's just not cool. But I mean, I was such a fan of, and I say such because it was early in my career that I read his books, but Stephen Covey. Yes. Oh, and you I mean, mentioned him a few times in the book. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I yeah. probably did. Yeah, I'm sure I did. Cialdini is somebody I also mentioned in the book, mm-hmm. um, if I'm saying his last name correctly. Yeah, Cialdini. And, and Cialdini? And, yeah, and that's why I mentioned I, I'm a fan. I guess I've been able to interview him twice for the show. No way. It's yeah. just amazing. Yeah, that that his books, well, Persuasion you mentioned, and then his yeah. other really big book. Psychology of Influence. Is, uh, yeah, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And he just came out this year with a revised uh, version of that, which is more than twice the size of the first one. Wow. With all new research in it. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Yeah. I love that book. Yeah. Love, love Covey's stuff because I feel like from a values perspective, it's like this guy gets it. Yes. Um, and it it really had an impact on me. And it's, it had a lot to do with that I read it when I was in my 20s. But, but either way, it's just... Um, yeah, it doesn't change the, the the power. I still remember a lot of it. Yes, that book and principle centered leadership, and I still remember a lot of the influence psychology of persuasion. I still remember a lot of those principles that he taught in the book. So those are probably my top two. I just read a great book called Different by Young Me Moon. I think is how you say that her first name. Have you read? You ever heard of that book? I think I have. Maybe you have somebody good to have on the show. But I read that book back in February of this year and. Obviously, the title is pretty self-explanatory, different, but it's a good good concepts in there about you know how to differentiate your solution. Okay, and she's she's in marketing. Oh, interesting! Different, escaping the competitive herd. Oh my goodness! Oh, it looks like this came out in this came out in twenty eleven. Is that how old it is? Okay, that's what it's saying I, I just, on here. Yeah, I just discovered it. Somebody referred it. You know, how, how do we hear about most books? Shows like yours. And yeah, tell us. But yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought her take on strategies, the unique strategies that companies, uh, marketing organizations um, uh, deploy to differentiate their solution, differentiate their product, service, I thought was, was very creative. She's a great writer. I thought she was a great writer. Interesting. I've, I've heard of her. Uh, it says, what if working like crazy to beat the competition did exactly the opposite, making you mediocre and more like the competition? There's a disruptive truth. There's yeah, disruptive absolutely. Truth. And and it was played out in um, a couple of books I had on the show this year. One was called Get Different by Mike Michalowicz, and okay. another one was Sell Different by uh, by Lee Sauls. Very interesting. And it ta- both books, as well as some others, have talked about why we are so resistant to wanting to be different. Kind of back to the caveman brains where we want to, we're actually uh, pulled mm-hmm. uh, like the dial and the compass to be more like to others, to, to want to fit in. So interesting. Yeah. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books you've heard of that you're looking forward to reading? You know, there's not, I have on my list, there's some I have on my list, but I don't think your listeners would, would probably be um, excited about them. One's on leadership. And oh, one, yeah, oh, yeah, tell yeah. us. These don't have to be marketing books, please. Okay, they don't have to be marketing books. Well, now you're, uh, I'm going to have to pull this up. I may be one-dimensional, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. We can't talk about other things, yeah. Yeah, one of them is a, a book that I'm about to read. And you know what? This is a marketing book. The book is An Audience of One. 
by uh, James Turn, Jamie Turner. Uh, that was recommended, and the qualified sales leader. Okay, yeah, and Jamie Turner, I believe he lives uh, in Atlanta, just like exactly you. right. Have you interviewed him? No, I haven't, but I, I know of him and I know uh, of some of his books. So. Great. Well, listen, at uh, marketingbookpodcast.com, this episode's website page, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, your site, the the resource guide we talked about, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now to the listener, I would like to say, please do me a big favor and reach out to Tom Stanfill in whatever way you can and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. If you got a question, ask him. I mean, he seems like somebody that might actually answer your question. He'd probably get a kick out of hearing from you. <laughs> yeah, I would. But do that. Authors love hearing from uh, Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and it could be the beginning of something really good for you. So, And if, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Unreceptive, A Better Way to Sell, Lead, and Influence. The author is Tom Stanfield. Tom, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. Really enjoyed the show and the uh, and meeting you and the questions. Best show I've been on. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.